Welcome to the Working with India podcast, conversations to help cross-cultural managers deepen their understanding of India, produced by learningindia.in. Today's episode features David Peace. David has been working with India since 2001 when he moved to Delhi. David runs Shanti Consulting, one of the most respected cross-cultural training and coaching companies in the country. David is going to talk to us about what it's like to run your own services business in India, how to build relationships, and everyone's favorite topic, negotiation. Unfortunately, my mic was not working well when I recorded this, so there's some static in my voice, but you should still be able to hear all of David's insights. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Working with India podcast. Today we have an extremely special guest with us today. David Peace is here. David's one of the most respected voices, I think, in the intercultural training field in India. And so we're very happy to have him on today. David, how are you? I'm doing fine, Neil. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. We're, I'm excited to have this conversation because you've really taught me a lot about uh, what it means to, to work and to live in India and I've taught so many other people. So I, I'm excited to be able to share your wisdom with everyone else that's listening. Thank you. Good. Well, why don't you just start off, uh, give us a little bit of background about uh, where you're from, your first exposure to India, and how you got to where you are today. I grew up in a small town in central Pennsylvania, and uh, and then from there, over a period of years, ended up in New York City. And so when people ask me where I'm from, I will often start with Pennsylvania, New York, but now I've lived in India since 2001. So I kind of feel like I'm from India as well. <laughs> so it's a little bit hard for me to actually say, where are you from? Yeah. But that's, that's my background. Okay. Um, my first memories of India were a TV program as a child. And it was about an Indian boy and uh, he had an elephant. That's about as much as I remember about <laughs> it. I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure if I even liked the program as I remember it, but uh, when I really began to understand India when was after college, I moved back to my hometown and I met an Indian. He was from Chennai and uh, we developed a friendship and it was from him that I really began to be interested in and learn about India. So I would say most of my uh, initial interest in India was because I had friends. And then, of course, in New York City, we had numerous Indian friends who taught me a lot about India and uh, what Indian culture was about. Wow. So you moved to India in 2001. What have you been doing since then? What's your life look like? Yeah, I lead a cross-cultural consulting company called Shanti Consulting where we do consulting, training, and executive coaching. We work with a broad range of clients. Our core competency is focused on cross-cultural leadership. Uh, we've done a significant amount of work with virtual teams in developing trust and processes to help them work well. And then we work with uh, cross-cultural transitions. And this is with executive families, and have done work with international students. I love that part of my work, which is when we introduce people to India or introduced Indians to the outside world and begin to experience the cross-cultural uh, ideas, the cross-cultural frustrations they're facing, and help them bridge those gaps. 
Yeah, and, and I've been so impressed with, the, with your work that you've done. I think we could probably spend the whole episode here just talking about cross-cultural ideas and theories and, and ways to, to look at cultures. But what I really want to focus on with our conversation, you know, this is the Working With India podcast, and you've had, you know, nearly 15 years of experience working with India, operating your own services business uh, to where you're going in, you're giving proposals, you're meeting with quite large companies, probably some small companies too. So I really want to um, hit on a lot of those points. As, as you look back on your, your career in India, um, what are some of the things that you, you find to be frequent? We'll just start with the challenges side. What are some challenging parts about running your own services business in India? Probably the most challenging is dealing with paperwork, <laughs> yeah. uh, some of the bureaucracy. And I forget sometimes as well that in the U.S. I also have dealt with paperwork and bureaucracy. Um, recently, I've been working on opening a second bank account, and uh, it has taken me a few months. And to a large degree because there's always another paper needed or another signature or uh, a rubber stamp. And I understand that in part because there are needed government regulations that come from uh, a very vast country with a lot of dynamics that aren't happening in the U.S. that are taking place here. So I understand some of the need for it. It probably doesn't, however, lessen some of my frustra frustration from time to time. Now, you and I are both, I think, more do-it-yourself kind of people. Uh, we don't like to have a lot of staff walking around doing these things. Do you think some of these challenges that we face because of paperwork is just because we haven't, you know, hired somebody just to say, just take care of all this stuff? Or do you think it's going to be there no matter what, no matter what size of business, no matter how many people you have working with you? It will lessen if you have a agent or intermediary, but it will be there, I think, no matter what size you are, because eventually, even if you send a person to the offices to get some of these things done, there will it will come back to you and there will still be a time gap before the work is done. And so it, it, it is important to be patient in India uh, and begin to understand some of the reasons why it's happening. And so I need to be careful that I'm not blaming the person at the bank that is sitting in front of me because he also is, um, is underneath the regulations which are controlling him. Mm. Yeah, I find that struggle a lot in my own life that you just want to really get mad at, at somebody, but there's no one to get mad at, right? Because right. Everyone, everyone you interact with is, is a slave to the same system, so it's, it makes it hard. Yeah. And and some of the systems come from colonialism, and some of the systems and the mechanisms are in place because legitimate problems and legitimate needs within India that make them necessary. All right, so, um, so dealing with paperwork was one uh, big challenge, one of the struggles that's there. Anything else on that, that challenging side? Looking at the big picture, you know, a 15-year window. I would say the other thing would be in the area of negotiation. Um, I tend to get a clearer, faster picture of what is happening when I deal with a U.S.-based client. Mm -hmm. And so when I send a proposal out uh, to a potential Indian client, 
I am a bit, I feel like I'm a bit more in the dark. And uh, I, we get a significant amount of our work through our website. Mm -hmm. So I respond to proposals regularly. And I might respond to a proposal and then just have dead space or dead time. And so I'm waiting, I'm wondering, are they going to get back to me or not? I found over time some of the initial requests for, nego for proposals. Mm -hmm. uh, I looked at it and I said, well, this one probably isn't going to happen. And that's the one that happened. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one client that called me from, uh, initially contacted me. They were from Mumbai. Uh -huh. And it was the intern that contacted me. Oh, yeah. And I thought, oh, intern. No chance there, right? No chance. But I got the work. <laughs> and <laughs> then maybe, there was maybe, one... maybe that intern had a, a relative that was quite high up in that company or something. That could be. <laughs> that could be. Most inquiries I get are with someone that is a bit lower on the in the echelon. And so... Almost everything needs to be taken to a boss who is higher in authority and approved. And so that also accounts for some of the lag time. Mm -hmm. What is better if you can, especially if you're doing your own marketing and you're being more proactive, and I've done some of this as well, is to actually start as high as you can. Mm -hmm. And when you start at a higher level, you're much more likely to get into a conversation where you can really express the add value that you bring mm -hmm. and it has much more potential that way. Yeah. Why don't you, since you've had so much experience, why don't you give people a little bit of uh, a view of what the internal workings of an Indian HR team looks like? Because, I mean, you've, you've done a lot of training, you do a lot of work in uh, proposals and procurement and all sorts of different things. I, I don't know how much experience you can compare it with in the U.S., but... Um, what, what does it look like uh, if someone wants to get involved in, into a, an Indian HR uh, function? What are they going to be up against? I would say that most Indian corporations are rather hierarchical. Mm -hmm. And so there will be one person that will be leading the HR who will have a significant amount of influence. And if at all possible, having and building a relationship with that person will be a, a good step forward in in being able, being able to sell yourself. Mm -hmm. And there will be another other many other people that uh, basically they will be doing the job of filling a need, being doing a lot more of the paperwork or clerical work that will then filter up towards the top. Uh, I had been contracted to fly to different places of India and uh, to do training for large groups of people. But every time that I booked a flight, it had to be approved by the VP of HR. Mm, nice. And I thought, okay, why? <laughs> and I think we would probably, in the U.S., we would probably take care of that through our systems. It would be in the system approved to do this. But this particular situation it needed to go and have his sign-off on it. Wow. Yeah. So I think to a large degree, we must understand some of the hierarchy with Indian organizations. And again, this has some benefits and it has some reasons for it. 
but uh, but there is that sense of understanding where people rank and where the how the organization looks hierarchically. So as a as a person who's you know face to face with Indians in your professional work life, when it comes to building relationships, um, especially okay, you're you're thrown in front of twenty Indians for a session. What are some quick things that you do to make sure that that the tone of the room is is set to a good place? I always introduce my training by introducing my family and introducing a bit about myself. So I I will tell a bit of a cultural journey that I have taken mm-hmm. and uh, talk about. I will have a picture with my wife and my kids, and it's amazing how often they warm up just by me opening my life a bit with them. And I tell them I've been in India for a number of years. It is very common for someone to come up to me at break, for tea break, Mm -hmm. and they'll ask me, so do you like it here? (laughs) Or why did you move to India? (laughs) And in essence, giving an affirmative expression of, of India as their country, and indeed I do enjoy India, that that perhaps as, many, as much as anything else begins to build a sense of rapport with them and a sense of I care about your world, I enjoy your world, and that sense of uh, India has been very, a very enriching experience for me. Yeah, I, I totally agree that that when you affirm the culture, you affirm the people, you affirm something about the history, about, you know, it could be anything about the cricket team, you know, just, yes. just say, you know, this is a good thing. You, you have good things going on here. That, that really speaks a lot of value. It does. It really does. So that, that's good ways to, to build relationships. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you pick up a lot of things over 15 years, I'm sure. So what are some, some of the opposite things? What are some things that you either did that, uh, negatively impacted a relationship or you you always stay away from now this isn't something that uh, i did that actually hindered a relationship but it had huge potential for me when i was first getting started with my consulting business in the u.s i had a friend who was a graphic designer design a business card for me mm-hmm. and uh, he put a basic shape of india and a basic shape of the U.S. And all I was thinking was artistic and does it look good? Mm-hmm. I showed it to my good friend Indrajit. Indrajit and I would get together quite often uh, for either pizza or dosa. <laughs> and I learned so much from Indrajit over the years in New York. I showed my new business card proudly to Indrajit, and he looked at me and said, oh, there's problems here. (laughs) And the problem was that basic shapes work for the U.S. I didn't necessarily need to put Hawaii and Alaska on the card, but the basic shape for India did miss the section of Kashmir and the Northeast. And they were extremely and, and still remain somewhat volatile in terms of political issues that they rise and and various kinds of separatist movements. And so I quickly threw out those cards and made new business cards. (laughs) 
but there are those areas that we as outsiders need to be very, very careful of treading on, the, on that ground because of the sensitivity that they bring in the Indian context and the complexities that they bring as well. So you talk about sensitivities and everything, and, and I think even in, in listening to you talk, everyone can tell that you know, you're, you're careful with your words, you're, you want to make sure that you, you say the right thing. Um, in terms of one of the things we talk about on the website is about the thin-skinned nature of Indians, and, and not to say that other cultures are not thin-skinned, it's just as an outsider, it's very noticeable for us that there are a lot of topics that we have to be careful to tread around. So in, in your experience, how have you navigated that? Do you feel like that's something you're always aware of and always conscious of, or um, you learn things the hard way, or what's been your experience? I would say, for the most part, I I initially speak very carefully and and with a sense of concern mm-hmm. that I I show respect, and consequently, when I do have a, a good relationship, it's also true that Indians open up very readily. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's all dependent upon relationships, and there are, there would be some things that would be comparable to it in the U.S. as well. That there probably there are some topics that we would we would be a little bit vulnerable at, or we went, we would say, well, no, let's not go there until I get to know someone. Uh, but they're often in India, they revolve more around issues that have to do with identity and community. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the U S they may have more to do with issues that revolve around our individualism and our individual taste and assumptions. Mm-hmm. And India being a collective culture, I believe, is one reason why these kinds of sentimentalities do express themselves. Indians have grown up in a culture where they continually look at how people are responding in terms of their answers, uh, even from the school system. The teacher was expecting a certain answer, and so you geared that answer to what the teacher would be expecting, Mm -hmm. as it is in a hierarchical society. And so I think Indians' eyes and ears are just more in tune with the expectations of communication, whereas Americans, being more individualistic, have been taught all of our lives to say, well, tell me what you think. Speak the truth. Get it out there. And so when we do that as Americans, often we are saying things in a way that are more direct and that would be more likely to scratch the sentimentalities of, uh, of the ears of those who have grown up in a different system. Yeah, so to, to kind of pay attention to what, what matters to people, what affects them, um, you know, cause it's, yes. it's very individual too. You know, what, what's going to offend somebody down in Tamil Nadu is not going to be as offensive to somebody in Delhi. Uh, I'm sure. Exactly. Exactly. One of the questions I have asked over the years is for Indians to self-describe themselves to me. Hmm. And on numerous occasions, they describe themself, uh, themselves as being sentimental or emotional. Hmm. And so that, that's actually the thing that, that got me thinking along this line. And as I have, I've heard Indians tell me that, 
that I've been able to test it a bit or not purposely test it but experience it and simply be aware of the things that are sensitive to them and the things that might offend. Yeah, expand on this idea of um, sentimentalism, though. I, I think that's an important thing for people to know about. It's not just about being sensitive. There's a, I think it's a broader term that that means, that I, I think, really aptly describes a lot of Indian relationships. So, what's what's your experience? Why would you describe Indian relationships as sentimental? Yeah, it's not sentimental in the way that often Americans think of sentimentality. Sentimentality for Americans is more of a sense of remembering um, a Christmas or a Christmas card or, or something in the past that brings back that sense of uh, nostalgia, that sense of being touched by a relative or a close friend. I think sentimentality in India has a bit more to do with the sense of communication and relationship and maintaining some harmony in the in the current relationship. So so when harmony is broken in relationship there is it happens because something or someone has perhaps unintentionally, perhaps intentionally, did, does something that upsets their sentimentalities, I think is a word that they would sometimes use. Hmm. Yeah, and I think in general people, you know, they care a lot about the relationship. And so yes. they, they love being reminded, because I think even the, the point about being reminded of history, um, you'll see people commemorating you know, anniversaries a lot more often here, uh, really reflecting back on those things. I think it's also a part of, of, of relationships and, and really putting a lot of weight onto them, which I mean, we talk about all the time, but uh, yes, you can't talk about it too much. It's, it's really important. Um, they want to feel connected to people and they want to feel like they have a history with someone too. Exactly. I, one thing that is important here that I don't think is nearly as important in the U S is, it's important to wish people. And so when there is an anniversary, when there is a birthday, uh, oh, I just want to call, wanted to call you and wish you. Mm -hmm. And so that sense of expressing happy birthday, expressing these sentiments is also very important. If you are invited to a wedding, it doesn't mean that you need to go to the whole event, which may span five or six, seven hours. But if you go and eat a bit of food, you have embraced that relationship and you have affirmed it. Mm, yeah. Whereas in the U.S., we may be more expected to uh, come for the whole thing. Or, or maybe a simpler uh, idea would be if you have a, a guest coming to your house or someone just drops in, and you ask, oh, can you have a, it was my birthday, I want to give you a sweet. Or will you have a tea? You don't have to actually eat the whole sweet. You can just tear off or, or break off a small bite and taste it. And you have affirmed the relationship. So it's a different sense here than it is in the U.S. Yeah. Well, so, so let's, uh, I'm going to ask you just a couple quick questions now. Um, just based off your whole years of experience. Let's go back to negotiations for a second. What are some high-level 
but really insightful quick tips you can give to people when they're negotiating with Indians? When you do send a proposal, realize that it, there will be, it will be bargained down. So it will be negotiated down. So give a little bit of a pad space in it. The, the struggle here, though, is depending where the market is, and because I am living as an expat here, which uh, just with all those expenses involved, I need to charge a bit more of a premium price. And I need to market myself as an international. And so I need to come in with a price that is higher than the average Indian because of simply living and expenses. And the competition is, is fairly strong. But if I go too high, then they will just dismiss it out of hand. So finding the medium price where there is some room for negotiation, not too high and certainly not too low, I think is the best way to move forward in your first, um, as you first return a proposal. The other thing that I would say is if possible, go to the company and don't just do it by telephone. Mm -hmm. Go have a cup of tea, talk to them, and explain what your product is about, why your product will meet their needs. Tell them some stories about how, uh, how, how it's worked and how you have been able to use, for me, use my consulting. So I need to connect with them and help them know, yes, indeed, what you're offering is a superior product, what you're offering does meet our needs. Uh, I think that's important. The other thing I would do is I will ask lots of questions. I will try to do a, a survey where people begin to answer questions. I seek to customize my services so that it's something that will meet the need as as a as closely as possible. I don't like to run in, dump my information and run out. I like to really focus on meeting the real needs. And once you begin to meet the real needs, they will appreciate the value that you bring and, uh, and it has good potential to build your business. Yeah, so, so when you're negotiating, this is always a good question for mine. Um, okay, so you build in a little room for... Uh, some discount or some uh, drop down yeah. the price. How soon do yeah. you give it though? If they, if you send it to the proposal and they ask you immediately, is this the best price you can give, or is there something else you can do? You know, we're a small company; we only have a limited amount of budget. Whatever excuse they give, um, how long do you wait before you apply that discount? Do you wait till the end, or you kind of give it right away, or in the middle? Do you have any thoughts on that one? I would not give it on the telephone. Mm. I would. Uh, I would. Say, well, I need to think about this a while. Let me talk to some of my colleagues. So, so have some delay. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, I think, again, it's getting a feel for where the person is, how serious they are about it, about it what the expectations are. So it, it's a bit of a, a sense of, okay, I don't want to get drawn out in a long negotiation process that is going to end nowhere and take a lot of my time. And so that becomes the, the balancing act. Are they somewhat serious and they're just 
as a matter of course, they say, can you give us a better price? Sometimes you can sense, okay, giving them the better price is important to them. They've already bought it. I know they're going to take it. And so you give them a marginal price. Other times, the actual getting the work is dependent upon a significant decrease. And at that point, you need to make the call as to whether or not it's really worth the continued negotiation or you just at that point need to say, well, I really can't meet the price that you're asking for and, and kind of let it drop. And at some point, um, I remember one negotiation that I had that it was for a smaller company and I was negotiating for, with someone from the lower end of the, <clears throat> the totem pole, as it were. And she just kept pushing me and pushing me and pushing me. And I said some things that, that she picked up as being conciliatory and that would indicate that I was going to drop the price. In my own mind, I had not made a commitment to that. But... Anything that she grabbed hold of, she took and told that to her boss and then made that as this is what he said, these are the facts, this is what you'll, you'll do. Well, in this particular, and I haven't had this happen much, but in this particular situation, uh, I could not agree to what they were saying in their email and as to what they thought I had agreed on. And, and that became very very frustrating for me and very tense because they accused me of not keeping my word. Mm. And so, so saying things on the telephone that you say in a conversation where you're kind of going back and forth and your emotions get a little bit involved, it's, pro it's better not to do it then. It's better to think about it, have a reason sense of this is what I can actually do. It's fair for me. It's fair for them. And then, and then lay it out in a written form. Nice. Okay, good. All right, what about uh, just one tip you'd give somebody who's coming to India, starting their own business? Uh, what's the best thing you could tell them? I would say uh, begin with a sense of patience because it, it will take time. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's okay. As Americans, we tend to think of things much more in terms of the next quarter. Mm -hmm. And so time is very, very strong, uh, is a very, very strong motivator for us. Mm -hmm. And so we want things to happen quick. I would slow down, be very intentional about building relationships, and do a lot of observing, learn by observing. The other thing that I have found to be very significant is we need to balance the equation between adapting and adding value. And this may be for someone that isn't coming necessarily to start their own business, although it would apply to them as well. But especially if an executive is coming to India to take up a new position. Mm -hmm. The reason why he is being sent to India is he has corporate knowledge or technical knowledge certain skills that are going to add value to the company that he is being assigned to in India. So sometimes he will come in or she will come in with the idea, okay, I know what my goals are. I know what my job is about. 
I'm going to come in and I'm going to tell them what they need to know. I'm going to add value. It's important at that point to back up and say, no, before I add value, I have to adapt. And beginning by adapting, beginning by building this reservoir of trust. And, and so kind of going their way first, observing, understanding, do some adaptation, drink lots of tea, go to a wedding, and build those relationships. Once you've adapted somewhat and they trust you, then you're going to have a more of a voice to be able to speak and say, how about this? Indians also are very, very anxious and crave information and crave skills. The, young, the younger Indians do. I, and I, I, I need to make that as a point that younger Indians want to grow. And if they find someone that's willing to invest in them and mentor them, mm -hmm. that can be very, very significant. And you can develop a, a very good working relationship that honors both cultures. Excellent. No, I, I love the point you made about you know that ad adapting versus adding value. Uh, sometimes uh, I'll talk about you know either giving or you're you're giving in. Not giving in maybe in a negative sense, but like just allowing yourself to um, go with the the way things are done here. You know we expect things to be done our own way. Um, yes. And being willing to say you know this is not important to me so much that I'm going to risk my uh, time here in India, but I can give in on these issues. Yes, exactly, exactly. I would say the other thing that I would pay attention to for an expat is before coming even, take a good look at the corporate culture that you're going to be entering into. What, what are the dynamics of that corporate culture? And begin to understand that as much as possible. Great. Well, David, thanks so much for sharing all this. <clears throat> I think you've given away probably most of your, uh, your training insights, uh, so everyone can appreciate the free course they just got from you. I've enjoyed it, Neil, and uh, I appreciate your insights and uh, the work that you're doing as well. I think it adds a lot of value to what we're all doing here in India. Yeah, thanks. Um, so uh, where can people find you if they want to get to know more about you, your company? Yeah, we're shanticonsulting.com. That's S-H-A-N-T-I consulting.com. Great. Yeah, so definitely check out their, their webpage. It's obviously very good. It attracts a lot of good attention. Um, so if you or anyone you know is interested in um, getting that kind of service, David's the guy to go to. All right. Well, thanks so much. I hope you have a great day, David. Great. Thanks, Neil. You as well. This has been the Working With India podcast produced by learningindia.in. Please subscribe to the show to get new updates as soon as they're released. And as always, don't do India alone.